You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're joined today by Dr. Charity Dean, an MD and MPH. She's currently the CEO and co-founder of the Public Health Company. Congratulations on just launching that just about six weeks ago, right? It's been a huge effort. Our public launch was in May. So we'll talk in the course of our conversation about the Public Health Company. Prior to that, Dr. Dean served as a senior official in the state of California as, as the acting director of public health? I was the assistant director of California Department of Public Health and served for a time as the acting state health officer. And then prior to that, you were a public health officer in Santa Barbara County. That's right. Initially as deputy and then the county officer between those 2011-2018. That's right. You were raised in rural Oregon. You uh, went to med school at Tulane, which I think may be where you also got interested in infectious diseases in Africa mm-hmm. and the like, and acquired your, your MPH as well. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about this. You also became a central figure in Michael Lewis's recent book um, on the response to the pandemic, The Premonition. We'll talk about that in a moment, too, where you became one of the members of the Red Dawn group as a Wolverine. We'll We'll explain to our listeners what that means. But let's first start on a personal level. How did you make this pivot? You came out of of rural Oregon, pre-med studies, medical school, on the path to becoming a surgeon. How did you make that pivot that then took you into, into infectious diseases in public health? It's a great question because it felt like a twisted path. And at the time, it didn't make sense to me why it was so full of twists and turns. I fell in love with microbiology as an undergraduate at Oregon State because I had always been obsessed with pandemics and outbreaks ever since I was a little girl. I loved reading about bubonic plague, um, Ebola, any hemorrhagic virus really was exciting. And so in college, I majored in microbiology. I minored in French because I knew Mm -hmm. I would need to speak French in Africa. And so when I got to medical school, I think it was the adrenaline rush. I think it was trauma surgery and making having to make a quick decision. Do I cut? Do I not cut? What needs to happen right now based on scattered information from the patient and what they were telling you? That kind of quick thinking and decisions in trauma surgery just resonated with me. I loved it. And by the time I got to medical school, I had lived in Zimbabwe for a time working Mm -hmm. in a very small missionary hospital that did AIDS care and tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And so I had been exposed to some of these diseases that fascinated me. So in medical school, I thought, well, I want to get a master's of public health and tropical medicine. And Tulane's the only place in the country where you can do those simultaneously. So I spent some time in Gabon, West Africa during medical school doing tropical surgery, mm-hmm. which is a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, tropical diseases and, and surgery. I have all kinds of stories from that. And so those are my first two loves. And initially, my classmates and colleagues said, well, those don't really fit together, communicable disease, tropical medicine, and surgery. But when I got into residency in general surgery and ultimately made the decision to pivot to internal medicine, in my mind, I could not align the two to figure out why do I love these two things. But it's really the pressure to make fast decisions when the stakes are high 
lives depend on you. You have scattered data from different sources and you have to make a risk analysis. And if you're wrong, people die. So you made this pivot. You got involved Santa Barbara County. You got involved in some some pretty heavy stuff pretty rapidly, right? You had MDRTB. You had meningitis. You had some other things that happened in California in that period that were pretty shocking. So you got some you you got thrown in the deep end pretty fast it seems to me. Man, it definitely felt like that. I started out as the deputy health officer for the county and I was seeing patients in clinic and I was overseeing tuberculosis and communicable disease. What I didn't know is I was about to get hit with these massively large tuberculosis outbreaks that by the way were multi-drug resistant TB. So within about 2 years of going to work for the county, I by default had to become an expert in multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and started using genomic epidemiology to track how the cases were spreading. Right. Again, it was a survival tactic. If I if I wanted to know who my super spreader was and where the cases were moving, I had to track the genomic epi of tuberculosis. And California, by the way, is one of the four states that gets the highest influx of tuberculosis. That's uh, right. Like Texas Florida, New York, California. That's right. We hosted the TV officer for California here once, and it was a fascinating story. I mean, the volume, the actually burden is quite high. It's quite high. California has been number one in the U.S. for TB case rates. Shockingly, Santa Barbara County, where I was the unsuspected local health officer managing TB outbreaks, at one point was ranked number five in the state of California for the case rates Amazing. of tuberculosis. We saw about 30 cases a year. And this was all tied to migration patterns? Some of it was. Uh, some of it was tied to homeless outbreaks. Yeah. And that's why the genomics became so important, mm -hmm. because I would have a theory based on traditional case finding or epidemiology about who infected whom. And every time I got the genome report back, I had been wrong. It turned out there were social connections between homeless individuals, families, schools, yeah. workplaces that were invisible, that the patient did not disclose. And so I started to realize that genomic epi was really the disease control of the future, but I was doing it manually. Pieces of paper, right. charts, whiteboards, yeah. tracking these genome mutations across time and space. Um, there was, you know, there certainly was a component of groups migrating up and down the coast that was involved in some of the tuberculosis outbreaks, but that was only part of it. Yeah. So let's jump ahead to you're working for the state of California. You're the assistant public health director, right? Yes. State of California. Tell us how you started at the early, at the early advent of SARS-CoV-2. How were you experiencing this? Uh, how, how did this unfold in your, in your presence in, in that role? Yeah. To say I was stressed was an understatement because as a local health officer, you know, if you were to cut me open on the inside of me, I'm just a local health officer. And on the front lines, we know that the intelligence is sketchy at the beginning. Outbreaks always start quietly. And you have to look at all these atypical data sources and then make a bet or a differential diagnosis of risk right. for the community. So in early 2020 in January, I was watching obsessively any information coming out of China. Twitter, uh, all kinds of social media sources. What first prompted you? I mean, I know in Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition, there's a very famous episode there or anecdote that he tells that when you were making a, n a note to yourself in December of 2019, 
as you around the time of your birthday and thinking ahead for your the your objectives for the you noted it started mm-hmm. and that was the premonition mm-hmm. where where did that come from what prompted that you know i cannot defend that from a scientific or academic perspective but i will tell you this Doctors develop a kind of an instinct. And when you've been doing something long enough, and in my case, 20 years around communicable disease outbreak response, you get kind of a sixth sense. You can almost smell it. And I had journaled on my birthday in December 2019, something was coming and I could feel it. And in my mind, what I saw was a giant blue tsunami wave. But it wasn't something that was coming. It was something that had already started. And it was going to sweep over California and the United States. And in my head, it looked like a tsunami. And what do you think brought that premonition on? I don't know. It just happened. You wrote it down to yourself. It was a very private moment. It was not something I ever imagined I'd be sharing with the world. It was so private, in fact, that when I wrote it on my birthday resolutions on my grandmother's photo, I never intended for a single soul to ever see or know about that. And when I met Michael Lewis, I certainly didn't tell him about that. He happened to pull the picture off the wall and read the back, and that's yeah. how he found it. Yeah. But in retrospect, it's kind of a remarkable moment. I don't think you were alone in people having premonitions. I think what you've described is true, that there's when you're in this field, there is something intuitive. There's something that emerges sort of in a way that's not necessarily predict- predictable or logical, but which motivates people to pay much closer attention. So you were already being very attentive when the first reports appeared in January. That's right. I was on high alert for myself personally. What is this thing that's coming that has already started? I could feel it. So I was paying very close attention to the reports coming out of China. And every time a paper was published from any country in January or February, I obsessively printed it, took notes, read every reference that they had looking for clues. And the clues I was looking for is... Uh, what is the R naught? What's the case fatality rate, yeah. hospitalization rate? In other words, you know what I was trying to do? It's how do I map out the epi curve? What assumptions yeah. am I going to use to predict what's about to happen? And so before we talk about Red Dawn and the Wolverine group, tell us a bit about how you were working within the state of California in trying to think ahead, think ahead about what this might mean and how what kind of planning. Because you were you were one of those people who th- was thinking about what kind of n- non-medical interventions are going to be essential and when, right? right? And and when you're thinking in those terms, you're the person who, while there's no evidence of a storm, has to go to a political leader and say, a storm's coming, you just can't see it, and you've got to start shutting things down and changing people's behavior on a mass level. So you come across as a nut oftentimes. Totally. As a crazy person. And What I'm obsessed with is containment. At the local level, I know how to contain measles, tuberculosis, meningococcal disease. And it was driving me bonkers in January, February, that there was no effort at containment. So I was the crazy person. I was the loud chicken little saying, we can contain this. We have a shot. We can contain it in Mm -hmm. California. I dusted off the pandemic plan without any knowledge that Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett wrote it. I dusted off the CDC's pandemic plan and said, a white paper is great, but a white paper is not a tactical, practical, operational plan. I'm writing up an operational plan. So you're doing the translation. Exactly. You know, on the front lines, white papers don't matter. What matters is in the fog of war, 
what's the next right thing to do? What are you going to tell the troops to do? And so that's what California needed. So in my role with the state, I was I one of my roles was to oversee the licensing and certification division called the Center for Healthcare Quality. We have 11,000 licensed healthcare facilities in this state. Yeah. And so the first thing I did after I long mathed the epi curve based on assumptions from intelligence from China and academic papers is I said, where does this epi curve cross the line of how many negative pressure isolation rooms we have in California? Yeah. And so put together. That's the break point. Yeah. And, and it was literally a whiteboard of here's our bed capacity. Here's the epi curve. We've only got like six weeks, eight weeks. And so putting together phone calls every Tuesday morning at 7.30 a.m. with the entire healthcare system of California. Now imagine someone at State Public Health says, hey, entire healthcare system of California, we're going to hold informal informational calls every Tuesday morning. We know the CDC is not saying this is a threat. We know they're saying the threat to the American public is low. We're going to get on the phone with you and tell you, do you have an empty cafeteria? Do you have an empty warehouse? Do you have a wing you can turn into isolation? You need to be prepared because the tsunami is coming. So you had to do this without the backing of CDC at this point. In fact, the CDC's guidance was moving in the other direction. So you're trying to get people to really sit up and pay attention and plan ahead and think hard, but you're going to those who are skeptics are going to be able to say, well, you know, we're listening to Atlanta and why are you getting so alarmist? What was the trigger point? I mean, Governor Newsom, like Governor Cuomo, became a, became a national leader on these issues. Not without mistakes. They all made mistakes. But I think when the records, you know, written around the, the governors who performed, they weren't all Democrats. Some of the really well-performing right. were Republicans. But what triggered what you're you're out there trying to build the case, get the troops lined up, get their heads around what needs to happen. But you're also trying to move the argument up the up the ladder towards the governor. What was the trigger point, do you think? Do you mean the trigger point in for the message? In terms of moving towards when he made the decision to, to move towards lockdown. Sure. Well, I had been pulled on to the modeling team. I got a phone call one day saying, hey. This is from Park? Yeah, this is with Todd Park. I got a phone call uh, one day from someone in the governor's cabinet saying, we need someone that knows disease control and is obsessed with outbreaks and understands the assumptions going into the epi curve to sit yeah. at the center of the modeling team so that you can <clears throat> tell them what assumptions should be used. And I had never met Todd Park or DJ Patil or any of the other amazing humans, mm -hmm. but immediately became part of the modeling team. And so we worked really hard with Hopkins, yeah. um, putting constructing a model that would show the governor exactly what was going to happen under different scenarios. Yeah. And it wasn't just the scenario of do nothing. The do nothing scenario is catastrophic. We know that. But under different scenarios of uh, partial lockdowns versus a Wuhan style lockdown, what would happen? Yeah. And what was important to me is that we use lessons from 1918. So I went back and pulled out some of the assumptions. John Barry's book and yeah, John went Barry's and reread John Barry's book. Yeah, but the the paper that Carter Mesher and Richard Hatchett wrote in 2007, yes. where they essentially give everyone a scorecard. Yes. That was my Bible. So I used assumptions from St. Louis and Kansas City right. in 1918 as the input for the California model. Mm -hmm. So when you look back to June of 2020, when the governor was pretty proud of the effort and Hinn should be uh, that California did to do the right thing. California wasn't beating a stay-at-home model from the Bay Area. California was actually beating St. Louis and Kansas City from 1918 because those were the assumptions I used. Now, let's talk a bit about the 
national group that formed up that you joined. There was this dialogue that came to be known as the Red Dawn Group. And there were these, you've referenced several of these people, Carter Metcher, Richard Hatchett, who's a close friend. We had him here just recently to present on CEPI's new vision. Rajiv Vankaya, who is also a good friend. Michael Callahan. These are but came to be called the Wolverines, and you became known as a Wolverine. In fact, they referred to you sometimes as a Wolverette. So what? explain to our listeners, what was this Red Dawn dialogue or group, and what, what are Wolverines? Sure. Well, I got a call out of the blue from Dwayne Caneva, who was at the time Chief yeah. Medical Officer of Homeland Security, and said, will you join our group? And it felt very risky to me because I could tell that this was a band that was not doing their official roles in government, but was trying to save the country. And I learned later that this was the team that George W. Bush had pulled together in 2006 to put a pandemic plan together. And then they had been together in 2011 under, you know, um, subsequent presidents. And basically for 20 years, this team had been together as thought partners. And I was excited to be pulled in. I didn't quite understand who they were. What were they looking for from you? They were looking for someone that would be able to move the needle in California because they realized that the federal government, neither the White House nor the CDC nor traditional institutions were going to step up and lead a national effort, but they were hopeful that a brave state governor could if he had the right information. And that's why they were interested in pulling me in. So they realized the federal... I mean, basically, the Trump administration began to abdicate federal responsibility openly and overtly uh, from about mid-April on. So it was beginning to dawn on people that there was going to need to be initiatives taken in a variety of other places, and the powerful governors were going to be terribly important to this. That's right. The governors were key. And Governor Newsom, every decision I saw him make, he made the right decision. He thought so carefully about the data. I would brief Mm -hmm. him on the microbiology or genomic epidemiology, and he got it. He's very sharp and really wanted to do the right thing. But remember, it's hard for humans to grasp exponential growth. So as a frontline disease controller, I was used to making life and death decisions in the fog of war. I understood exponential growth. I don't expect others to understand that. And so it was a real process of explaining, here's what's going to happen. Here's we need what we need to do. I know it feels quiet right now, but this is going to get bad. This is going to be a massacre. Now, the, the, the Red Dawn group was also trying to come up with plans that could be used in dialogue with the Trump White House to get an extension of the what was the initial 15-day lockdown to get it extended through all the way through April, right? Mm -hmm. So that it became a Mm 45-day. And this decision has been been analyzed in Andy Slavitt's new book. It's talked about in Yasmin Abdutaleb and and Damien Paletta's new book, um, Nightmare Scenario. So what you were participating in was also trying to feed a sort of game plan that could be fed into the White House to get them to to help argue in favor of extension. And in fact, the, the, the Trump White House did agree to do that. Mm-hmm. That was a moment, that March timeframe was a moment, if you look back over the data coming from Kaiser Family Foundations poll, polls or from mm-hmm. Pew Research Center, 
It's a period that was a high, that was a high mark in terms of a national consensus among Americans as to what needed to happen. And then it began to break down mm -hmm. um, under the uh, uh, under political as it became politicized as the economic consequences mm -hmm. came home as President uh, abdicated and pressed for you know quick reopening. But um, did you feel like you were having that kind of impact by participating? I didn't know. I became aware that various characters from the White House were joining our Red Dawn calls, and I was glad they were. They wanted to hear from, you know, essentially the unofficial think tank of government, what's coming and what do we need to do? Were they going to act on it? That's what we didn't know. But on those phone calls, you know, I was very restrained in the emails, but in the phone calls, I was very unrestrained and talked through you know, again, a white paper is not an operational plan. What is the operational plan for the United States? Here's what we need to do. We need to this and then this and then this. And state governors can lead this. And the window is closing. We need to do it now. So they were very tactical and practical. This was not an academic group. This was a tactical warfare group. And you didn't know the Wolverines before this, right? I did not. I knew some of the people, that 2007 paper that Hatchet yes. and Carter Mesher yeah. wrote, that was in my binder. I loved that paper. It gave every city a scorecard. Yes. But I had never met any of them. And Dwayne Keneva had almost been an adversary, for lack of a better word, because our bosses were opposed. I was working for Governor Newsom and he was working for President Trump. So when you look back at the failures of 2020, and there were there were also some successes, but it's the the pattern of the response is is as it's being documented in book after book that's coming forward is it's pretty stark in your own mind how do you explain what happened the failures that we experienced what were the root factors do you think i think this is the most important question because doing an after action and asking what was the root cause is what gives us hope because then we can get into solutions. And what gives me even more hope is the failures were clearly systems failures. The American people and the leaders of institutions that failed are great humans trying to do the right thing by and large. But the system failed because we don't actually have a U.S. public health system. The technology they have is from the 1970s. So they cannot move faster than the pathogen. Mm -hmm. Twitter moves faster than the pathogen. Facebook mm -hmm. moves faster. But we had an antiquated, uh, very fragmented, under-resourced, right. understaffed, That's right. whatever it is, 3,500 public health that's right. And to make matters worse, the healthcare system is siloed away from that. So healthcare and public health do not have integration. integration at all. And so, of course, the system was always going to fail. And frontline containment, that's what local health officers do. But that's not what the CDC is designed to do. So it's not fair to say a system should do what a system literally can't do and wasn't designed to do. So the system's failures are really something that gives me hope because that means we have an opportunity right now as a country to say, wow, this just showed us all the fault lines. We can fix it now. We can stand up a system solution across public health and healthcare. And how do you grade the Biden team so far? 
I think they're doing a fantastic job. You know, I would also say there were many in the Trump administration that did a fantastic job. Mm -hmm. This was a systems failure. I, I really believe even if we had had a, you know, switch out President Trump for another president that we still would have had a systems failure. And so I think the Biden administration is incredibly forward thinking. They want to look out what solutions do we put in place to ensure that this never happens again. Bad news is this will happen again. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, these threats are getting more frequent. And so the real question is, what system solutions do we need in place to quickly detect and contain a fast-moving novel pathogen? Because right now, the United States does not have that capability. Okay. That brings us to the topic of the company that you formed, the public health company. And you've done it with some of the same people that you've mentioned, I noticed. <laughs> That's right. Park Todd. Yeah. I mean, Todd Park, uh, Richard Hatchett, Rajiv and Kaya Carter Mesher, many of the same people that appear in the story of California and the story of the Wolverines and the Red Dawn group are associated now with you. And then uh, you're you're building very much on the on the backbone of the Chan Zuckerberg biohub. So it's a very it's very much deeply invested in the concept of Silicon Valley and its power to contribute to some of these. So tell us what your vision is. What's your vision of what the public health company is going to do? And then we can talk a bit about who it's going to serve and its applications. Well, I had always been obsessed with the notion that communicable disease control and the manual operations should be put in software. But through COVID, I could see the private sector needed that too. Mm -hmm. And as I watched rumors spread on Twitter faster than the actual COVID virus spread, which was faster than local public health could move or faster than the CDC, I realized the technology for the United States to move faster than the pathogen exists, but it's in Silicon Valley. Government can't build this, but Silicon Valley can. And I realized I would need to become part of Silicon Valley and build a technology company to put disease forecasting and disease control into software mm-hmm. to scale those those tools to the private mm-hmm. sector. And so the large vision for the public health company is truly to build software that's backed up by what I would say is the best team in the world of data scientists and mathematicians and infectious disease experts. And you're building in genomic sequencing too, And right? absolutely. Genomic epidemiology is a game changer in disease control. And, yeah. you know, like I said, I've used it in hand-to-hand combat in kind of a clunky way. Mm-hmm. We've put it in software. Mm-hmm. so that it can democratize access to it, so that even a private sector company has the latest tools of disease control, as if if they had, you know, Charity Dean, Josh Batson, Carter Mesher, Joe DeRisi, if they had that team standing next to them, what would we tell them to do? We're codifying that in software. Yeah. And it, it's really born out of the need that up to this point, every private business has transferred the risk management of infectious disease to government. How did that work out? So what I'm hearing from you is you're developing a new software platform of platforms that are going to be fast, that are going to integrate things that have not been integrated. You're going to be putting a big focus on private sector businesses and the risks they face and the way they manage risks. So that's your orientation. That's that's the future. You've just launched yeah. this firm. That's right. With I, some seed funding yep. from some investors to get you rolling. You've got this all-star team working for you. You've got a software already. We have early versions. So what happens next? What's going to happen the next? What's your vision the next yeah. one to two years? Where does this go? 
Our focus is on the private sector because they don't have any tools, but we yeah. very much see this as public and private. So mm -hmm. we're in conversations with states who are very interested in this. Mm -hmm. Our vision over the next two years is to build a very capable disease forecasting software platform, but then applications and tools that run on top of it mm -hmm. for things like genomic epidemiology or mm -hmm. to answer the question, what do I do now? I'm a private business with global distribution how do I manage these cases of even different diseases? Yeah. You know, we're really thinking post-COVID. So our goals in the next two years are to build out the software, the disease forecasting, show the private sector that these tools are now accessible to them, and continue to work with the public sector, especially yeah. the states that are interested in this. Yeah because they're operating with technology from the 70s. So it's really a yes and, uh, but we're doing a lot of education right now um, to show people why software, why technology can move way faster than the pathogen. Thank you. And good luck with that. Yeah. And, I, and I hope we can bring you back to CSIS soon for a public event to sort of walk when things have moved a little farther along to sort that. of uh, have a public discussion around, presentation and discussion of this. We're starting to resume our public events. Our, our, well, they'll get larger in time, I hope. But this sounds extraordinarily exciting, what you're, what you're doing, and congratulations on that. You already told us a little bit about what's the roots of your optimism and hope. We, every one of these podcasts, we close with our guest sharing with us sort of why should we remain fundamentally positive and optimistic and hopeful in this period. Can you just give us a quick synopsis? I know you're an optimist. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing if you weren't. What gives me hope is the very fabric of the United States was founded by a band of rogue patriots who were willing to do whatever it took to form a country. And look, we didn't get it right in the beginning. Our goal is to form a more perfect union. Mm -hmm. But we've been doing that over 250 years. As a country, when we see a need and a new technology or a new capability, we leverage the private sector and we build it. So I have incredible hope that all of the failures that have been laid bare by COVID can be used for good to build solutions because – as President Biden recently said, don't ever bet against the United States of America. We are always reinventing ourselves. And I really believe that a decade from now, many of those solutions will be in place, but we have to do it together. It's all of us. It's every one of us that comes up with those solutions throughout the whole history of the country, but certainly right now. And you feel, from what you've indicated, you feel as if it is very much possible to transcend some of our political divisions at this moment in time. I do. You know, I was born and raised Republican, and then I became a Democrat and, and served in a Democratic state. And I see the value of both sides' arguments around traditional political issues, mm. but we are one nation. And I really believe there's one thing we can all agree on. This didn't work. So getting into solutions from that point of agreement actually gives me hope. I think as a country, there are solutions that can span the political divide to protect the economy, to protect workers, to keep us safe, and to make sure it never happens again. Well, Charity Dean, thank you so much for being with us today. It's thank a real you. honor and pleasure to have you here with us. Uh, we've resumed doing these podcasts in person in our studio here at CSIS. Thank you, Elizabeth Pulver, for engineering all of this for us and producing it. 
And I hope we'll, uh, we wish you all the very best, Charity, and we'll get you back here soon. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Ulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.